Turn with me in Scripture to Genesis chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just um, share with you something from the Westminster Directory of Public Worship. We uh, always seek to bring our, our worship in greater conformity to the Word of God, and our man-made but very helpful guide to that is uh, the Westminster Standards. And it has this to say about the public reading of Holy Scriptures. Reading of the word in the congregation being part of the public worship of God, wherein we acknowledge our dependence upon him and subjection to him, and one mean sanctified by him for the edifying of his people, is to be performed by the pastors and teachers, albeit such as intend for the ministry, meaning ministerial students, may, may occasionally both read the word and exercise their gift in preaching in the congregation, if allowed by the presbytery. All the books of the Old and New Testament, but none of those which are called the Apocrypha, shall be publicly read in the vulgar tongue, the common tongue, out of the best allowed translation, distinctly, that all may hear and understand. How large a portion shall be read at once is left to the wisdom of the minister, but it is convenient that ordinarily one chapter of each testament be read at every meeting, and sometimes more, where the chapters be short, or the coherence of the matter requires it. It is requisite that all the canonical books be read over in order, that the people may be better acquainted with the whole body of the scriptures, and ordinarily where the reading in either testament ends on one Lord's day, it is to begin the next. And so with that, we turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and so it was. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. 
So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God bless them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This morning we consider a passage that is of the greatest importance uh, from many perspectives, but particularly for understanding the spiritual realities that we encounter every day of our lives. It's the parable of the sower, the first part of Luke 8, and I I wonder if there are many passages in the New Testament that I've made reference to more in the course of the sermons here than that particular one because indeed it helps us, it illustrates um, so much. Now, of course, there's a warning label on this and every other parable that actually is in our text in the first section of Luke 8, uh, Luke 8, verses 1 to 15. And the warning label is this, when he had said these things, he cried, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing that they may not understand. Uh, Again, it it seems so counterintuitive in the days of seeker sensitivity that Jesus would intentionally use words that were ambiguous, words that could be misunderstood, uh, words that might not be known by the unregenerate, but that is precisely what he is saying. Uh, he sometimes speaks in parables precisely so some people might not understand, those of whom the, the Holy Spirit has not opened their ears to hear. And therefore, following the very clear rules of interpretation by, by which clearer passages always interpret the less clear, we would never go to a parable, for instance, to discover some brand new doctrine. We would not go there as the main basis for some doctrine that we don't find somewhere else because they are in, it's supposed to be ambiguous. They're capable of being misread, especially if there's not a very clear interpretation that the Word of God gives itself of it. Thankfully, we have that here in our passage this morning. 
But on the other hand, if there's that warning, there's also certainly a promise to God's people that they should understand. It says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So with that warning, we should be very thankful that we have such a promise. To you it has been given to know these mysteries. And so let me tell you a mystery this morning. Have you ever wondered why it is that sometimes people... Maybe two people come and hear the very same gospel proclamation, the very same presentation of the word of God, and one walks away with eternal life and the other one walks away with nothing. Or, you know, that's very, very um, puzzling, I think, to new believers in particular. Because based on their experience, if someone else, their friend or their family, just hears the very same presentation that they heard, which worked so well for them, where they were able to understand things that they previously were not and came to faith, if only they could bring someone else and they hear the same thing, well, of course, they would also believe it. But that doesn't always work out. Sometimes it does, but very often it doesn't. And likewise, puzzling to, to pastors, puzzling to elders, to see some under the word of God and to see them embrace it fully and to see uh, the, the wonderful fruit of that and all the beauty that is seen by these things in others, to feel to seem as if that they're only at the, the edges and that these things are not being brought in in their fullness. And the, the answer of, these, of, of all this is to be found in this parable of the sower. But even though we are mainly looking at the bulk of our, our points, four out of five have to do with these situations, has to do with an explanation of why it is that sometimes these things happen and sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's great fruit and sometimes there's none at all. Sometimes there's faith and sometimes there's nothing. It is yet the parable of the sower because ultimately what we're talking about is Christ himself in this work. And we can't get too focused on the outcome with regard to man because the one who's behind it, the one who is, is doing all these things, and the one who, if there is fruit, the glory must go to him, is Christ, who is the sower. And it is him. It is his business to build his church. It is his work spreading this, world, this work and this word throughout the world. So our title this morning is The Parable of the Sower, with um, five points um, the first four having to do with these four categories of ground. The wayside, the stony ground, the thorny ground, the good ground. So those four, wayside, stony, thorny, and good. And fifthly and finally, the sower himself. So first, the wayside. It starts in verse 5. Interesting, isn't it? The sirens that are, what are they designed to do? Uh, to get your attention, right? Because there's something happening that requires your attention. I wonder if we should have a, some sort of gospel siren to get people to pay attention. It's something important that you should listen to. Well, it says in verse 5, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. And then he, he explains what it meant if we didn't get it. Uh, in verses 11 and 12. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. What do we know from this? A couple of brief observations. First of all, that the devil is real. It's interesting to me that even in this part of the country, 
The devil is frequently referenced, but sort of as a folk character, something out of old stories or so forth, and, and not really believed, not really understood, but he is very, he is real. He is active, and he is doing people harm. He is seeking to destroy you spiritually, and you need to know that. You need to understand that this work, this work right now, this work of preaching that is going on right now, if this parable is to be believed, is being opposed. There are those among you whom Satan is right now seeking to make sure that you do not really receive this word. He is seeking to steal it out of your hearts. How? The details aren't given. The, it's, it's not spoken of directly, but I think we can piece some various things together. Uh, there is, he works by way of distraction. Um, I, I should say as well, he sort of, he, um, what's the word? He vaccinates people, doesn't he, in this culture? He gives them a vaccination against Christianity. He gives some, sometimes it happens, I think, even in, our, in RE classes of, of, of certain schools where the, the way that the Christian faith is presented is almost in a way to make sure that you never actually believe the, the Christian gospel. Uh, it happens by catechizing us. It's always a wonder to me why it is that every unbeliever has the very same objections to the Christian faith. Where did they get that? Why are they so concerned about those people in Bongo Bongo land that have never heard the gospel? Why do they care? They've never been there. They don't know anybody from there. The reason is because Satan catechizes them in various ways, various lies, various objections against the Christian faith so that the moment, the one time that they actually hear, they may only hear the gospel once in their life. But he wants, he's doing everything else in their life to make sure that 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 one moment that they actually hear those words, that it does them no good whatsoever. That the word is is kept from reaching their hearts. Of course, he also works in in a very standard sort of way simply by distraction. It is amazing to me, again, how you sometimes, again, maybe you're like me, sometimes you've You've arranged for your relative or your friend to come hear the word of God somewhere. And isn't it amazing the things that come up um, that it seems like the whole world has fallen apart and the person just can't make it. Sometimes these major things, sometimes minor things that get in the way. Or even if they're there, maybe an ambulance comes by and a siren it is a distraction. Or children are a distraction. Or whatever might be a distraction. Maybe they've... God, Satan has arranged it for them to bring their phone and they're just they're checking their, their texts as the word is being preached. He'll do anything, absolutely. Or maybe it's even just mentally that there are these other things, these pressing matters which somehow seem more important in the word and the word never gets to them. Why is he doing all that? What's the point? Well, it says less that they should be saved, less they should believe and be saved because he would want, he wants nothing Less, nothing more than that we should all be with him in hell because he hates us. The word of God says he's a murderer. That's what he is. He hates people. He wants to kill you spiritually. And therefore he goes to great trouble to make sure that you don't believe and that you're never saved. Well, that's what happens when this seed is taken away. The seed is the word of God, and those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And notice that Satan cannot prevent them from hearing. That's the thing. Um, the word of God goes out on its way, but, and I'm sure he would like for us not to hear at all. 
But the real work is being done that even in hearing, that it does not make it to the heart. The devil comes and takes the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. That's the wayside. And secondly, there's the stony ground. In verse 6, some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And uh, here, the, the picture is um, that word rock. It really is um, rock rather than sometimes um, Americans, in fact, use the word stone and rock in opposite ways than, than we would here. But that's, that's what it is, a big, giant Petra, a big, giant rock, a place, in fact, that in other places, in another parable, Jesus speaks of as, it's a good thing to build your foundation on the rock because it is so big and solid. It is a good place to build a foundation. But we're not here talking about a foundation. We're here talking about a place to plant plants. And this rock is not a good place to do that for the simple reason that it doesn't have soil and it does not have availability of moisture. It's just a rock. And the roots cannot possibly go into a solid rock. There is no way of getting moisture from it. And that's all explained spiritually in verse 13. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And from time to time, if you go walking in places, um, maybe in the, the northwest, for instance, there's, there are rocks there, and you can see this, can't you? You can see little plants that have, they have seed, the seed goes around, and maybe there's uh, just a tiny bit of moisture in the air, and they spring up, but they, they wither. You can see them there sitting on rocks, withered away. The only things that are growing are ones that actually have some soil on top of the rock. There's, there's not a root there, there's no place for the root to go down, and therefore there's no moisture. And, and in which case, when the sun comes up, it's dried up and blows away. Again, that's explained spiritually. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but they have no root who believe for a time and in time of temptation, believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. And what that means is that they have a superficial attraction to Christ, but they're not really connected to him in any deep and abiding kind of way. And I would explain this personally as being a psychological situation, whereby psychologically someone is attracted. They haven't been regenerated. The Holy Spirit hasn't changed them. They're not actually saved, but psychologically they have this this kind of superficial attraction and this desire to be part of the church, this desire um, to uh, call themselves a Christian for a while. But, you, you know, I, I guess, by the way, and, and the, the outcome here, the reality that they don't last very long, that's, that's why, in case you're wondering why we don't have, uh, you know, major pushes for you to come down here and make a decision and why you're very welcome to sit in the front row here, which seems to be empty. We don't have an anxious bench at this church. That's an old form of psychological manipulation. You come down here, you raise a hand, all the rest of it. The reason is not because we're not concerned about the salvation of souls. I hope there's nothing more important to us. The reason why is because that kind of psychological manipulation doesn't last. It's a work of man, and all works of man will fail. It will not last for eternity because there's no root there. All you're doing, I think, is creating these stony ground believers 
And we know even those f- most famous and most successful evangelists of the, of the 20th century have quite frankly admitted that the great majority of all those who make decisions in such a way are false decisions. We need not muddy the water in such a way. We're thankful, by the way, for the many real decisions, of course, that are going to come every time that the Word of God is proclaimed in its purity and its truth. But we do not need to add to that then, these false things, the stony ground hearers, these ones that have no root. And by the way, at the moment, it can't be told. You see, that's the funny thing. It springs up. It is even possible that they might even spring up faster than others because they don't have any distance to go. Sometimes a seed falls in good ground and it actually has a little distance to go before it pokes its head above, above the ground around. Whereas on the stony ground, it happens immediately. They receive the word with joy and immediately they come up. But the difference, the real difference, is not seen until there's some kind of trial. It's not seen until there's some kind of temptation. That's incidentally why it is in the providence of God that such things happen. People, Christians wonder, why does my faith have to be tested? God has his own good reasons for it. Among them, that the real believers might be seen in distinction to the false. There are these temptations in order that the world around, the church in particular, and even the person themselves might understand what their situation is because they're going to fall away in this time of temptation. They have nothing abiding, nothing, no source of life in Christ. They do not have the Holy Spirit giving them life. They do not have, the, you know, how Christ is, is uh, spoken of as the vine, the source of vine. They're not connected to him, ultimately, and so they fall away. And their lack of connection to the source of life, it's only demonstrated by their falling away, not caused by it. And you have to understand that. It's not that the temptation has somehow ripped them away from Christ. It is only demonstrating the fact that they were never connected in the first place. That's the stony ground. The third category is the thorny ground. It says in verse 7, And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And the picture is very easy to see. Some plants produce no fruit because they're choked with weeds. And that's explained spiritually in verse 14. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they had heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Well, what's happening here? What's happening is that the cares, the concerns... The preoccupation with the things of this world are causing someone not to be a fruitful Christian. A parallel passage in Mark 19, uh, sorry, Mark 4, 19 says this, And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And I, I think, by the way, it is, and I'll mention this later in the application section, I think it's possible for a believer to be choked by these concerns, but that's not what is being spoken of here. This is not a category of believer. This is just the third category of unbeliever here. What is being choked is not the believer, but the word. It's being choked, so it never actually makes it to the believer's heart, or, or to, to the heart as well. It, it's just simply being choked out. The word is not getting to where it needs to go in order to produce fruit. Again, that's something that is sometimes um, debated in, in Christian circles. Are there such a thing as a carnal Christian? 
Very often these are precisely the ones that have made the decision for Christ in a very sort of public way. And the question is, you know, why is it that they show, it seems like they have no fruit in their life and we just, we, we deem them to be carnal Christians. I think this parable would classify them as among those who are not believers. They, this word is, being, is completely choked out and producing no fruit whatsoever. And it's very important, no fruit whatsoever. You know, because Jesus makes it clear that one, one thing is very clear about fruit, that a Christian will have some. There may be differing amounts. Some will have more than others, but a, a Christian will have some fruit. Matthew seven sixteen. You know then you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And you see, this is characteristic. There are these characteristic traits. If you're looking for a fig tree, you look for figs. And if you see apples on it, if you see oranges on it, you say it's not. It's not that kind of tree. And so it is in the Christian. There are characteristic traits. Now, some trees are far more fruitful than others. But there are the characteristic fruits to be found on a Christian that are not to be found on those who do not believe. And, in fact, it goes on to say in verse 19 of Matthew 7, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Couldn't be any plainer. They're not heading to heaven, they're heading to hell. These are not believers at all, if there's no fruit at all. The thorny ground, quote, believer, is at the end, no believer at all. He's just as unsaved as the first two cases. There must be some fruit. And as, again, as I say, the fact that some will have more fruit than others, that's made very clear in another parallel passage in Matthew 13. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. That's very clear, isn't it? A hundredfold. Some only sixty, some only thirty. Some Christians are far more fruitful than others, but the fact remains that everyone will bear the good and bright fruit if they are a believer. The problem here is the word is so choked by the cares and concerns of this word of, of this world that the word of God does not actually bear any fruit in the person's life at all. That's the thorny ground. Fourthly, there's the good ground. Verse 8, but, on others, but others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And that's all explained in verse 15, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, let me just emphasize that one aspect of it being the heart. It is the heart. The ground for the word of God, brothers and sisters, is not your head. It is the heart. It is the heart. Your head is indeed a necessary conduit for the word of God, just like your ear. It must travel through your ear, your eye, you're reading it, but primarily what is being pointed out in, in the Word of God is the ears. The Word is being preached. It is a conduit. And your, your mind must process it. It says it to understand. That's incidentally why Christians care about education. It is not to make the world a better place. It is not to make you successful. It is so that you can read and understand the Word of God. That is why there were ever universal education in the first place. The Protestant faith brought that to Europe 
That is why we in this congregation care about education, that you might be able to read and understand this word of God. So it is a necessary tool. Unlike the ear itself, it needs to be worked on. It needs to be developed. It needs to be prepared in order that you can follow a logical train of thought, not just merely that you can read, but you can understand the logic involved, that you can understand putting one thing to another. You can understand the complexity sometimes that is to be found in a good sermon. So yes, there is some processing of it, but that's not where it remains. It is merely the processing center It doesn't bear fruit in the mind. It doesn't bear fruit in your brain. The place, the ground that it needs to go to is your heart. That's where it needs to go. It's got to be implanted in your heart. That's the place where it's going to grow and produce fruit. And that's incidentally why we here are experiential or experimental, as I used to call it. I don't use the word experimental every time because that seems like it's something you're trying out to see if it'll work or not. That's not what we're talking about. We, I guess we would say experiential Calvinists, um, true Calvinists, because Calvin himself, you know, he chose the one symbol that he chose to represent himself. What was it? A heart. Here's my heart, O Lord. Promptly and sincerely I bring it. That's, that's his sign. It was a heart. And if there is such a thing as cerebral Calvinism, it's a false Calvinism. What we care about is is what happens in your heart. Like Calvin himself, like the Puritans, like old Princeton, like the Free Church Fathers, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, it is about the heart. It's not about faults and ephemeral emotions. We just talked about that. We don't want that at all. It's the exact opposite. It's not about the superficial parts of you. It is about the very deepest part of you that there is. Well, that's where it needs to go. And what's going to happen is that they're going to bear fruit. Again, the reason why they bear fruit, the true believer, is because they're a living organism. It bears the DNA of the seed that has been implanted in them. Now, we could spend a long time explaining why it is that there is such a thing as a good and noble heart. We know from other places in the Word of God, it's because God has made it that way. It's because if you believe, it is a gift of God. If, if you are able to understand, if you are able, he is the one who makes the, the hearing ear. He is the one who makes the seeing eye. He is the one who makes the believing heart. If you have those things, it's because God has given to them, them to you. The reason why you bear a particular fruit is because God has implanted that DNA, as it were, that seed. And that's what it is. It contains this genetic material that will most certainly yield and produce some living organism that is just like him. Now don't we wish that we were completely and in every wit without any exception precisely like him? Eventually we will be. That's what will happen to this plan. That's the trajectory that is on. It's not completed in this life. But there will be even in this life signs of a distinct relationship, of a distinct identity that are different than those who are outside the faith. Real fruit you will bear them. If you're a Christian, you're not a weed. You're not a thorn bush. You will and you must bear genuine fruit, which is the marker of who you are in Christ, what he has made you to be. Please don't say, well, this is how you earn your salvation. Far from it. It is that you, in some sense, without your help, can't help to bear the fruit that he has ordained for you. And funny enough, with patience, 
then bear the fruit with patience. And so kind of without, kind of, A, it's in contrast to that stony ground here that comes up immediately then falls away. This is long-suffering. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Where there's, and again, the contrast with the stony ground here, there's no patience, there's no endurance, there's no long-suffering. There is endurance in the life of a believer. We're not delicate. We're not going to be locked over by a breath of wind, by a passing threat of any kind or persecution. In fact, there's nothing that is ever going to efface that mark of God in us. There's nothing that's going to be able to pull that seed from our heart. It doesn't matter who or what is trying to do it. Satan can do his worst. And he does. That's just the point. If that word were not firmly implanted, but because God himself has done it, he would pull it right from you if he could. And in fact, God has determined that there will be trials and temptations in order to manifest. If it were possible to get that word away from you, it will be. But no, in his own people, it's impossible. There's no force on earth that can pull that word, his mark, his seed from your heart. You will bear fruit and you'll do it with patience, with endurance and long-suffering. Well, those are the four different categories of seed that help us so much to understand the things that we observe around us. But we would be remiss if we did not speak fifthly about the sower. It says in verse 5, very simply, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, we hear the rest of it. And all I want to say is very simply is that notice how Christ describes himself. He describes himself as a sower dispersing the seed of the word of God. Now, we know, incidentally, as sovereign God, he also determines exactly what, where the seed is going to land. Sometimes places don't receive any seed at all. There are times in the history of, yes, there are bongo bongo lands, of which at the moment God is not dispersing any seed. That doesn't mean that it's always been that way or it will always be that way in the future. But he, in his sovereign hand, sometimes prints out. We, as God's people, go everywhere. We are told to go everywhere. There are no exceptions to that. If there's a place that hasn't heard, we'd better go there. Our responsibility is to do that. But God, in his sovereignty, makes it the case that some places don't actually receive any seed. And beyond that, that some seed goes to stony ground. Is that a waste? Seems to us maybe to be. God in his sovereignty for his own plan, for his own wise plan, determines that to be the case. And if there is good ground, we know it's because he has made it to be the good ground. All those things are true. But what I want to emphasize is what the passage itself emphasizes is that Christ pictures himself, depicts himself as the sower, as the farmer going out and sowing this seed and he's doing it liberally. He's throwing it everywhere. It's a picture, isn't it, that you get? He's not, he's not being stingy about it. If there's any uh, objection to be made about the way this farmer is doing his business, it's almost that it's wasteful in the way he's throwing that seed everywhere. He's pictured as this one sowing the seed. And the point is, the way that Christ is showing how his own work works, this growth and the propagation of his kingdom on earth, it is by the propagation of the word. You see, that's, that's the thing. Again, he could, have, he could depict himself with other things in his hand. He could, he could picture himself as uh, he is the banker that goes forth throwing coins of money here and there and, and, and so forth. He could depict himself as the culture maker who goes out sowing good culture here and there and the other. But he doesn't. 
He depicts himself as one who is, the, is, is throwing abroad the word. The means by which this kingdom is going to be advanced, the means by which there is going to be fruit, is the word of God, and we cannot forget that we must know this is what is going on. It's the word. And all that is perfectly illustrated. In some sense, this parable is an illustration of what, said, what is said in verse 1. Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And it's, he's, he's explaining what is happening because as he's doing that, he's preaching to everyone. He's going, what does it say? He's going to every city and village. What is he doing? What is he doing? It's not art ministry. What is it? He is preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And all this is about to explain what happens, right? Because some of those people believe. Some of those people become believers right before their eyes. You see them. And then later on, a couple of, maybe, maybe a few months or maybe a, couple, a year later, we see that some of those people go away. There's that in John chapter 6. You remember, from that time forward, many no longer followed him because of these hard sayings. And he's explaining why that happens. But as for him, the picture that we have of Christ is that he is dispersing the word of God near and far. In every place, that is what he's doing. He's the sower. Well, in application, in some sense, this all applies itself. But in another sense, of course, we have to do this work of application. We have to drive this home in our own situation, our own hearts. And the first question I'd ask is very simple, is what ground are you? You've heard this. I think it's pretty, pretty clear, isn't it? There's these four different categories Everyone is marked by these various things. There are some who the word doesn't do anything at all. There is no effect whatsoever from the word because Satan comes and steals it away. And so for some, I would ask you, can, can you even recall what was preached? Has the word of God reached you at all? Or has Satan stole it away from you already? If so, there's no possibility then. For you to see enough of Christ and his gospel to be saved because Satan has already taken it away. Is that possible even today in this room this morning? Yes, it is. We know it is because that is what's, what Christ has said about himself as a preacher. If it is true of Christ when he himself was preaching this word, it is certainly clear, clearly true of other human sinful preachers like me. And... I, if, if you're not that category, then what about some of the others? You know, maybe there's some who have received the word with joy. But what has happened since then in times of persecution? What has happened in times of trial? What has happened to your faith? Maybe that question is not so much for us present, but maybe to help us to understand with some others. And maybe, in fact, for those who have recently come to to faith in Christ, for you to understand why it is that God might bring trials in your life. Because God wants you to know the truth about things, where you stand. And the truth is seen that when these times of persecution, when these times of trial and tribulation come, that you remain faithful to him. That's why it's not such a terrible thing. And parents, we wouldn't want our children. We, wouldn't, we don't lead them in tempt- to temptation. We don't desire that they be persecuted. They don't, we don't desire that their faith be tested. But in the end, 
in the providence of God, it is a good thing that we and they might see the reality or lack thereof of their faith. What kind of ground are you? What about the fruit? Where's your fruit? Is there fruit? I, I, don't, I don't come as one who seeks to take away from your assurance because there are some among us who struggle with assurance. And for you, I want you to see the fruit is there. And you should be assured if that fruit is there. But for others, the question is, is there fruit? You know, and again, what are, what are examples of fruit? Let's be a little bit more specific. We know Galatians 5, 22 to 23. There's probably many other things that are, are genuine fruit. But it says here, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I hope most of the children here have that memorized. And the question is, is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace in your life? These things may not be there perfectly, but are they there? Is there long-suffering kindness and goodness? I would incidentally say that the, there, can be, there are groups of these fruit that some, some people in their personalities would ordinarily struggle with more than others, and probably some Christians have in greater degree than others. The question is, is it, can it be found? Is there that reality of these fruit that the Holy Spirit, wherever he goes, these fruit will be found? Long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. Is there faithfulness? Maybe some other people that are naturally good at being loving and kind and so forth, but, but faithfulness they, they struggle with. And the power of God, are you, have you been made to be faithful? Maybe closer to home, my own personality, is there gentleness, is there self-control? Again, the reality of your particular situation, your personality, all the deficiencies that you have by nature are there in order that the reality of the fruit, a fruit which is right and universal and multifaceted, that it might be seen. Because otherwise, if it was just one thing, those who are naturally good at that, you would say, well, they're Christians and no one else is. But actually, no, it doesn't work that way. On all these counts, there are those who are going to naturally have them and naturally not have them. The difference of a Christian is you have all of them. Not perfectly, not completely, but those things are to be found because they are the fruit of the Spirit. Where the Spirit goes, they're going to be there. Is it there? So take comfort. If not, then we ought to seek the Lord. That's the thing. That is, that's the, the net effect of these things. As Jesus said these things, we should understand about one another and we should understand about ourselves. If there's fruit there, do not argue with it. Believe it. If there's not fruit, don't kid yourself. Well, secondly, I would say this, to be ruthless with the weeds. I've said that the most straightforward, plain teaching of the parable, that those in the third category, the word is being choked by the weeds, and therefore they are not Christians. But I would say this. Jesus doesn't explain this much, but remember, there are some who are far more fruitful than others. And one of the ways that you could describe that is perhaps that these believers are also being choked to some extent by the cares of this world. And that's the sense in which I think is applicable to believers. We might not be fully choked, completely unindated, rendered completely fruitless by weeds, but we might well have our fruitfulness reduced in large measure by these weeds and thorns. You know, it's... 
Interesting in God's providence how you have these things brought home to you. I recently returned from America. You know that uh, my, my childhood home is in Florida, and I've certainly visited it. And it is so interesting to see because um, not everything gets, gets done at mom's house. She's 79 years old and can't do all that much. And so you have the opportunity to see what happens over a couple of years in, in the Florida heat. Everything grows much faster there. Um, things just left a little while are out of control. An innocent little weed left one year has become what we call a junk tree in two years. It's grown to 15 feet high, and it's encroaching on and destroying the roof. That's, that's what happens. It doesn't take all that long. A little vine left one month has suffocated and killed your precious plant the, the next they just grow that fast. And, and the, the answer, the only solution to that is you must be absolutely ruthless with these weeds. You don't have another choice. You must show them no mercy. You must cut them down. You must raise them to the ground. You must pull them out by the roots. And beyond doing that to the existing weeds, you've got to make the ground inhospitable to them. You should be growing good trees which cover the sun above so there isn't so much sun to be acting on the weeds on the ground. And then you've got to cover the ground with other good plants so that there's no room, no possibility whatsoever for the weeds to grow. And indeed, the more upscale homes that we saw, they've developed this wonderful new plant that is ground cover. And some of these places, maybe 75% of their, their garden is covered with this ground cover for precisely those reasons. They can't keep up with the weeds, and so they have this stuff that utterly covers the ground. It's good, nice, decorative plant. And even in all, all those things, we have to be vigilant about these weeds. We have to keep an eye. We have to be looking. Everything's got to be kept tidy. The good plants themselves kept nice and tidy and everything around them tidy in order that when there is a weed, we can see it and deal with it. Well, brothers and sisters, I guess the application should be pretty obvious, right? I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I think that most of us are more in the situation of Florida, aren't we? where these weeds grow before you know them. And that, that one, this, this thought, this idea, these unedifying things that spring up in our lives, we give them, unfortunately, we give them oxygen, we give them sunlight, we give them water, we give them space to grow because we don't immediately see the danger. We give them a little space to grow. And they, at the time, they seem very small and easy to control. And we, our mind doesn't even think about them. And we move on to other things. And yet, they're constantly, they're, they're getting bigger. And they're getting bigger. They're looming larger. They're taking up more of our time, more of our thoughts, more of our resources. And they grow and they consume more of our concern. And what do you know? What's, what's being taken away in all this? Our spiritual life is being choked. And our fruit is gone. There's a word here. The word is this, it is called worldliness. Have you heard that word, worldliness? Unfortunately, is isn't heard much in the church today. It's almost, uh, some people think that it's, it shouldn't be heard. You know why? My honest thought is because the church itself has become worldly. In fact, you're encouraged to be worldly in so many evangelical churches. But worldliness is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And what ounce is our Savior warning us against but worldliness? Listen again, verse 14. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And the amazing thing to me is that there's nothing necessarily sinful in that list, is it? Is pleasure necessarily sinful? No. Riches? 
it necessarily sinful to be rich? No, that's not the problem. You see, it's not. It's not talking about gross, obvious sins. It is talking about the insidious grip that this world can have on your heart if you let it. All too easily. There's nothing necessarily sinful in these things. And right now, if that very description that Jesus used fits you to a T, if you could say, look, this, this one, that's him. He is absolutely choked by the concerns and cares of this world. If that was your description, brothers and sisters, I, I can say that I don't think that we as elders would even have means or, or grounds to bring you under discipline. Okay, Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not something like that. And you can justify it if you want to. You can justify it to yourself and to other people. And there's nothing we can do about it. What Jesus is saying, this is choking you. What Jesus is saying is that there is not enough space for you in the weeds. If you want to have fruit, and brothers and sisters, I hope you earnestly desire after her. Yes, I would use the word covet fruit. I hope that is your greatest desire. I hope that your desire for that grows for the fruit that is to be seen now and for the fruit and rewards that is to be found in eternity. And that in your desire for those things, you'd be willing to be ruthless with the weeds. You've got to guard your heart. Who and what has your affection? Because again, that's the issue. What is growing in your heart? And what are your desires towards? What are your affections being wrapped around? What are the things that consume your spare moments? It's all summed up so perfectly in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you understand? It doesn't say don't be involved in the world. It says don't love the world or the things in this world. It's very clear, isn't it? Only you can answer the question, do you love the world? Thirdly and finally, I would say this, that we ought to recommit ourselves as a church. Take this opportunity of my return from America for, and our, again, the beginning of the school year. It's, we never quite escape the, the school year. It's, it, it's always with us. That's the pattern of life that we have. And every new September, we begin anew with our lives. And the question is, what are we here for? Are we here for our own comfort? You know? My friends, it's unfortunately too late for that. If you're a Christian, you have chosen a, not a path of comfort. If you desired a comfortable life, you should not have become a Christian. We're not here for that. What are we here for? We're here to do a lot of uncomfortable things, actually. We must, for instance, plant churches. That is what we have been set here to do in the first place. And it's not going to be comfortable. It shouldn't be. The only comfortable church plants are those that are splits because the, the church has self-destructed into two or more constituent parts that are at odds with one another. That's an easy church plant. That's comfortable because you're glad to get rid of them. Brothers and sisters, I hope that's not the case with those who start the church, the work in Hexham. We won't be glad to get rid of them. We'll be extremely sorry, sorrowful to see them go. And they, with us, it's going to be costly. It's going to be costly. And remember the cost that the church in Durham bore as they gave birth to us. It was not easy for them at all. And, of course, we have to think then to the fruit. We can't think about the now. We have to think about the fruit. What is going to be the fruit in eternity? Who are we going to meet 
in eternity. Maybe those a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries, ones that we'll never meet in this world. Maybe the covenant children of some of the core group of that, of that church in Hexham. Maybe those who've been brought in from the dark world around because that church was there as a light in a dark place. Generations from now. And the rewards, the fruit, goes to those who are willing to pay that price now. And that's not the end of it. Of course, this work is ongoing. There are so many churches that need to be planted. And this church itself needs to be built, and it requires cost. The days are upon us when we have to do some uncomfortable things. Very soon we're going to be leaving this particular place. But eventually we'll need our own building and all the costs and sacrifices that go along with it. And we're going to have to leave soon enough the comfortable situation in our infancy as a church in which we were just part of the larger session at Durham until we what we call particularize. We become our own church standing on our own feet as peers in the presbytery, becoming financially self-sufficient. All these things are not one of them are going to be comfortable. The question is, are we looking to that fruit? Is that what we desire? Well, in God's help, we pray that it would be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the clarity of your word. And even in parables, which we know are quite capable of being misread, we are thankful for the interpretation of clear parts of Scripture, even in this very same chapter, and for the power of your Spirit that enables us to understand and to receive this word. And Lord, we know it is our only hope. If it were up to Satan, not a single one of us would ever receive any part of this word. And we know he is active. But, Lord, Christ is stronger. He is the strong man. And we pray, Lord, that you would wield your omnipotent power in order that this word might take deep root and that those who are outside of Christ might be saved, that they might believe, and that, Lord, we all might bring forth great fruit because of this true seed in our hearts. And we know, Lord, that this is only possible in your great power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.